top Israeli official is meeting with the White House over Israel's war against Hamas. The lead starts right now. Meetings are underway between a close confidant to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and senior White House officials as the administration asks Israel to scale back its war strategy, while the Prime Minister says he's not backing down. And a new caravan of thousands of migrants is headed to the U.S. border from southern Mexico, just one day before Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to Mexico City in an effort to deal with the crisis. Plus, if you're planning to return an unwanted holiday gift, it may cost you. We'll tell you why. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. Right now, top Biden administration officials are set to meet with Ron Dermer in Washington, D.C. A close confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan are expected to press Dermer on moving Israel to a more targeted phase of the war that would mean less civilian casualties. This as Netanyahu vows a long fight in Gaza. The Israel Defense Forces are using its ground, air and naval troops to strike what they say are terror targets in the Gaza Strip. The Hamas-controlled Palestinian Ministry of Health says at least 20,000 civilians have been killed since Hamas first attacked Israel on October 7th. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House for us. Priscilla, these meetings could be underway at any moment. What are we expecting out of them? Well, this comes, of course, at a critical time as the U.S. looks for Israel to move away from its high-intensity war as the death toll grows in Gaza. This, of course, being a significant meeting with a close confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's a member of the War Cabinet and also previously served as Israel's ambassador to the United States. Now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan are participating in these meetings as they seek answers on what the next phase of this Israel-Hamas conflict looks like. Now, Israel has already assured the U.S. that it plans to move toward a lower-intensity war, more precise targeting of Hamas leadership. But it's unclear what the timeline looks like. Previously, U.S. officials believed that that localized operations would take place by January. But it's still unclear if that is happening and if the next phase of this war has kicked into gear. Now, senior Israeli officials throughout the course of the day today have maintained that there's no daylight between the U.S. and Israel and that they both are on the same side. Well, uh, we take advice from friends. We consult with friends. We don't have to agree on every small detail with friends. But in the bigger picture, we all uh, share the same goals. Now, behind the scenes, we know there have been tough conversations with U.S. officials and their counterparts in Israel. President Biden under increasing pressure domestically and on in the on the global stage as that death toll continues to grow in Gaza. And the president going so far earlier this month to warn Israel that if it uh, doesn't contain these casualties, it risks losing support internationally. So all of this converging in these meetings today as these officials discuss the next phases of the war and also, of course, the release of additional hostages. Biana. All right. Priscilla Alvarez reporting from Washington. Thank you. Well, today, new drone strikes targeted Israel, and a missile hit a commercial ship in the Red Sea. Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels have claimed responsibility for both, saying they are launching the strikes in solidarity with Gaza. For more on this, let's go to CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Oren, what do we know about these strikes and how they fit into the larger picture of this conflict? 
Biano, we just got a statement a short time ago from U.S. Central Command that says they intercepted and shot down quite a large barrage coming from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. In fact, according to Central Command, they intercepted 12 one-way attack drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land attack cruise missiles over the course of 10 hours on Tuesday. Those launches began at 6.30 in the morning and continued until early in the afternoon. Central Command says there were no reports of injuries that they received and there was no damage to any shipping. But this is part of what the U.S. has seen over the course of the past several weeks, if not months. Attacks against commercial shipping vessels and maritime vessels operating in the Red Sea, originating from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, as the Houthis claim that their attacks and their actions are in solidarity with the people of Palestine. In fact, the Houthis put out a statement earlier this, uh, today saying they attacked a commercial vessel that wasn't responding to Houthi naval forces that tried to reach out multiple times, saying their actions would continue and would continue in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Now, it's worth noting that these interceptions and these shootdowns were done by the USS Laboon, a destroyer operating in the Red Sea, as well as F-18 fighter jets as part of the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group that's been operating in the region. And recently, as the U.S. has launched a multinational force to respond to these Houthi attacks, that's what these U.S. naval forces have been doing there, trying to make sure that uh, the shipping in the Red Sea, one of the most critical waterways in the world, remain safe as they have continued to intercept these drones and these missiles. According to the U.S., there have been about 100 launches from the Houthis targeting more than a dozen maritime and commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Still, despite this massive effort from the U.S. and from other countries to try to safeguard shipping in such a critical waterway, many international shipping companies have chosen, at least for now, to avoid the Red Sea and either go the long way around Africa or try to find some other way to ensure the safety of their own shipping. Beyond this is clearly a major concern, especially with a barrage the likes of which we saw take place, according to the U.S., uh, today. Yeah, and at the center of this is Iran, which U.S. intelligence believes supply these missiles and intelligence, and the U.S. just carried out airstrikes on facilities used by Iranian-backed militants in Iraq. What more are we learning about the U.S. concern that these proxies are only escalating their attacks against U.S. interests? The common factor, and you're absolutely right to point this out, is Iran. The Houthis are an Iran-backed group, uh, an Iranian proxy operating in Yemen, and Qatayb Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy operating in Iraq. The U.S. carried out a number of airstrikes against Qatayb Hezbollah after that militant group, labeled as a terrorist organization by the U.S., carried out a one-way attack strike on U.S. forces operating in Erbil, Iraq, injuring injuring three U.S. service members, including one critically. The U.S. has tried to send a message to Iran with the forces it has in the region and the attacks it's carried out against Iranian proxies in the region, but it's tried to calibrate that response, sending a message without sparking a wider, a wider conflict in the region. The U.S. has tried to separate the Gaza war from the rest of the Middle East, but beyond it, with everything we're seeing here, the U.S. has been unsuccessful in doing so. And things appear to only be escalating. Oren Lieberman, thank you. Let's go now to CNN's Will Ripley in Tel Aviv. Uh, Will, Israel is carrying out ground, air and naval strikes in the Gaza Strip. The Hamas-controlled health ministry today alone said 241 civilians have been killed just in the last 24 hours. Tell us more about the situation on the ground there. 
Well, it certainly is escalating. It was 250 civilians killed just after Christmas Eve, the period around Christmas, and now just a slightly less deadly, 241. So the number of civilian deaths is really indicative of the fact that while Israel is now moving its, its, its military actions after securing much of the north into the central and the south, uh, the, 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 the central part of Gaza is full of civilians, and Hamas is embedding itself with these civilians. Israel's basing all of its attacks, they say, on specific intelligence, often from captured Hamas militants, telling them exactly where to go, where Hamas is, is positioning itself, where they're moving their, their headquarters, as each, uh, as each tunnel complex is destroyed each time they have to move to a different location. And now they're essentially right embedded uh, in between all of these people. And as a result, you have a high death count. Now it's unclear how many are civilians versus how many are Hamas militants, but Israel says their objective always is to go after Hamas, but sometimes these civilian casualties are sadly and tragically unavoidable because of the fact that they're just so closely packed together in the regular population and deliberately so, Israel says. All right. Well, Ripley, thank you so much. Let's discuss more with Beth Sanner. She's a former deputy director of national intelligence. Beth, it is good to see you. So as we've been reporting, Israel's offensive against Hamas shows no signs of letting up. And in fact, if anything, it's, it's intensifying. In an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Benjamin Netanyahu outlined three conditions that he says are necessary before there can be any peace between Israel and Gaza. And here's what he said. Hamas must be destroyed. Gaza must be demilitarized. And Palestinian society must be de-radicalized. These are quite ambitious goals here. Can they realistically be achieved? And if so, won't they need a longer timetable? Absolutely. Um, they will take a very long time. And I think some of these, particularly this idea of de-radicalizing the Palestinian society, I mean, it's, it's, it's a line that sounds good, but what does it actually really mean? How would you measure it? How would you define it? And in fact, aren't Israeli actions today actually radicalizing Palestinian society? I think the answer there is yes. Um, you know, this isn't intentional, of course, but it is a, a logical byproduct of the devastation that we're seeing in Gaza. So, so you know, this editorial, Biad, I think, is really written for the Washington audience, um, just like Ron Dermer's trip here. And it's not really designed to um, put a timeline in. It's, it's really designed to buy time. Yeah. And it seems like some of these objectives, if they are fulfilled, may take a generation or two. I mean, he's talking about reeducating children at schools. You mentioned Ron Dermer. He's one of Netanyahu's closest allies, well known in Washington, who's a former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. He's meeting with U.S. officials today and he'll, you know, the U.S. is expected to continue to pressure Israel into entering more of that targeted phase of the war. I'm just curious, Beth, given that President Biden just spoke at length with Prime Minister Netanyahu over the weekend, what do you think the purpose of this in-person meeting is? Well, Ron Dermer speaks Washington. You know, he was ambassador here for many years. He knows all the players intimately. He's going to be going up to the Hill as well as meeting with um, the officials in, in the administration. And I think, as I said before, I think it's really about um, buying time, about explaining what's going on rather than, um, you know, coming to anything definitive. This is about managing the partnership. And a clip you played earlier, I think, also about 
you know, differences between our ally, our allies here can be managed and, you know, all of those things. This is a lot about the public perception of managing this relationship and making sure that there's not too much public publicly, not too much daylight between Israel and the United States. But in fact, they're going to keep fighting. Yeah. And it's worth noting that that supplemental that President Biden has been pushing for, which includes billions of dollars of aid to Israel, has not been passed yet. So maybe that's something Ron Dermer will be focusing on as well. Uh, going back to what else we've been reporting, the U.S. has been hoping that this won't escalate into a wider regional conflict. But there was reporting this weekend that President Biden convinced Netanyahu not to launch an attack against Hezbollah targets in Lebanon just days after the October 7th Hamas attack. But you know, even today, we're continuing to see escalation in the Red Sea. A top IRGC leader was just assassinated. And the U.S. launched an airstrike in Iraq overnight. How concerned are you that this could be leading to a wider conflict, something the U.S. obviously wants to avoid? I do think, you know, we're definitely still on the, the range of possibilities here of escalating in any number one of these theaters, and they're all connected, right? And so, you know, we've got the Red Sea. We've also had an attack that the U.S. blames on Iran of a commercial ship right off of the Indian coast in the Indian Ocean. So, you know, we have so many of these things going on. And, and while I think both Iran and the U.S. absolutely do not want this to escalate. As Oren was explaining, they just want to keep the, the water kind of boiling, um, but not, not boiling over. But, but these kinds of things, you know, a lot can depend on what happens. This strike against the U.S. base in Erbil, one service member was critically wounded. Mm -hmm. If someone dies, that is what actually led us to killing Soleimani. Um, the IRGC Quds Force commander in January of 2020. So these things can escalate. We're not out of danger. Yeah, and there's also concern about a miscalculation as well that could escalate things. Oh. Beth Sanner, thank you as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bianca. Coming up, thousands of people have joined a migrant caravan headed for the U.S.-Mexico border, what the administration is doing to control the surge. And as candidates gear up for the final stretch before the Iowa caucuses, Donald Trump is on the offense in federal court. Why he says an appeals court should toss out his election subversion case. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our politics lead, it's beginning to look a whole lot like 2016, as former President Trump used the Christmas holiday to, what else, air his grievances, attack his political opponents, and spread false or misleading claims in a flurry of posts on Truth Social, including this. Merry Christmas to all, including crooked Joe Biden, deranged Jack Smith, world leaders, both good and bad, but none of which are as evil and sick as the thugs we have inside our country. May they rot in hell. Again, Merry Christmas. <sighs> Merry Christmas, indeed. Um, don't know what else to say, but let's bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes. Kristen, it appears he had a lot to get off his chest over the holiday weekend. Yeah, that's right, Bianca. And I think that, again, Merry Christmas really solidifies that it was such a Christmassy post out there. Uh, but this is really an indicator of what we are going to see over the next year, particularly if Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee, which polls indicate that he is likely to do. He, We are in a very politically polarizing time. And Donald Trump is going to make this a deeply personal election with personal attacks. He did it back in 2016. He did it throughout his presidency. And he's going to continue to do that now. And what you're seeing here is him attacking Joe Biden, attacking Jack Smith, calling these legal cases election interference. And this has really been the messaging that he is selling to his supporters. As we heard him say just a month ago when he was in Iowa, Joe Biden, and this is again Donald Trump, is the real threat to democracy because he is taking me on his political opponent. That's why I am dealing with all of these legal problems. And that's going to be the message as we head into another presidential election. Now, the other thing to point out here is that as Donald Trump ramps up his rhetoric, we're not just hearing him talk about these legal cases. He's also really hitting that anti-immigration aggressive rhetoric. I'm talking to his senior advisors and talking to the former president himself. There is no indication that he is going to tone it down at all. And that is because in this primary, ahead of these primary and caucuses, he is not getting any political pressure. And in fact, it's the opposite. The more amped up he has been, the higher he has seen his poll numbers go, particularly if you look at those Iowa poll numbers. So perhaps this will change if he does become the nominee and he is in a general election. But right now, there is no reason to change what he is doing or how he is speaking because it is working for him with the Republican Party. Yeah, it does appear to be working. And late Saturday night, Trump's legal team asked a federal appeals court to toss the election subversion case claiming presidential immunity. And then Trump continued to make that argument on Truth Social, posting this. I'm entitled to immunity. Additionally, I did nothing wrong. Stop the witch hunt now. now Trump repeatedly referred to the legal cloud that is hanging over him. Is this just another way to continue to rile up his base? Well, there are multiple things going on here. Yes, this is politically productive for him, even though it would not seem to be so. His base does get riled up. They do believe that this is some sort of political persecution and that Joe Biden is going after Donald Trump. And as we have seen time and time again, when he has been indicted or brought to court or participated in one of these trials, uh, his poll numbers do go up. 
So does his fundraising. So this does work for him. But the other part of this is that it is hanging over him. Look at that case in Colorado, for example. He went on multiple brands attacking the Supreme Court justices in Colorado who overturned the case, ruling against him, taking him off the ballot in that state. While his team does believe that that's going to be overturned eventually, they also now know that he has been essentially called formally an insurrectionist in a legal sense. So what does that mean long term for him, both legally and politically? They don't know. So that is something that is very much weighing over them. That case in New York also weighing over Donald Trump. We have it has wrapped up. We are still waiting for a ruling in that, but something he cares about very much. So, yes, it is political fodder for him, but it's also something that he himself is hyper fixated on. Yeah, he has been. Um, Kristen Holmes, stay with us. Let's bring in another Kristen, Kristen Soltis Anderson, to discuss all of this with us. So Kristen Soltis Anderson, you have a piece out today in The New York Times, and you write about how Trump is running his 2024 campaign differently from 2020 and 2016. Here's what you say. If Mr. Trump ran before as the disruptor, don't count on him doing so a third time in 2024. Voters don't want chaos anymore. What I see in here is an electorate that seems to be craving stability. And you don't think that's necessarily a good thing, not for former President Trump, but for President Biden. How so? Well, right now, Donald Trump is somebody who has run for president twice as a wrecking ball, a bull in a china shop. And he has tried to sell that to voters as a positive thing. It worked in 2016. It didn't in 2020. And thus far in the lead up to 2024, if you look at things like his ads that he has put out, a number of them have tried to sound a note that has said, if I was president, we wouldn't be at war. If I was president, we wouldn't have this economic chaos, chaos at the border, etc. It's as if he is trying in at least his formal messaging to pivot toward, I'm going to be less chaotic than Joe Biden. But of course, what you just talked about, his Christmas evening message really runs counter to that. It's kind of the, the id and the ego, if you will, the two faces of Donald Trump. He wants to, I believe, in 2024, make the case that Joe Biden is more chaotic, but his own nature to just tweet random things that are offensive or crazy at any given time really are going to make it hard for his team to execute on that kind of strategy. Yeah, sometimes he just can't break old habits. But you're right. He does like to say from time to time, I know X world leader. I know this world leader. And thus, I can handle this better than my opponent can. Kristen Soltis Anderson, sticking with you, you also say voters want change. President Biden has been in office now for three years. You think he can convince those voters who want change that, that he's the right candidate? I think it's going to be challenging for him, and that's why I really think this election is going to wind up being a bit of a race to the bottom. It will be less about, hey, you should like me. I've done wonderful things. Give me four more years. And instead will be a lot about, here's why the other guy is worse. Here's why you can't possibly want to hand things back to Donald Trump. I mean, there are poll numbers out there when people are asked, do you think that Joe Biden's policies have made you better or worse off? By a 30-point margin, voters say worse off. But then when they're asked about Donald Trump's presidency, by a 12-point margin, more people say they were better off. So mm. there's a little bit of perhaps a rose-colored glasses moment going on here, voters thinking, well, maybe things were better before Biden was president. I suspect Joe Biden will be eager to remind those voters why he thinks that was not the case.
We are seeing consumer sentiment finally start to turn around. Maybe that'd be good news for, for Joe Biden a year before the election. Kristen Holmes, um, it's notable that Trump is returning to an unfulfilled 2016 campaign promise that if he's elected, he will repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. He didn't do it before, but here's what he posted now. He said, Obamacare is too expensive and otherwise not good health care. I will come up with a much better and less expensive alternative. People will be happy, not sad. Now, keep that in mind as we show you polling by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which finds that Republican voters are far less interested than Democrats in hearing the candidates talk about the Affordable Care Act. Only 32 percent of Republican voters rated as, quote, very important. So why do you think of all issues, because he typically goes with his gut on some of these, and many times he's right. Why of all the issues is he targeting this one? Well, you see that 32 percent, if you ask Republican lawmakers who want to talk about the future of the Affordable Care Act, that is much lower because many of them still have PTSD from what happened back when Donald Trump was in office, when they tried to overturn Obamacare. It was a signature promise of Donald Trump's. And even with a full a monopoly on power in Washington, they were unable to do so. So many Republicans don't want to touch this topic. Now, when it comes to Donald Trump, this is something that was brought to his attention when he had a meeting with a former governor of Kansas who wanted to talk about Obamacare. Then he saw a Wall Street Journal article uh, in which Elizabeth Warren was pushing back on some of the aspects of the Affordable Care Act, uh, saying that it was costing people more money because insurance companies were taking advantage of the law. Now, this came into his head, and it's what I'm told by senior advisors, as a bipartisan and potentially winning issue. He has become since fixated on it, on the healthcare aspect, on overturning it. But I will remind you that when he was in the in the office, when he was in the White House, he made a promise that he would come up with a new health care plan that would completely overhaul the Affordable Care Act. He never did. He left office without coming up with that. So now he is saying the exact same thing. Uh, but yet we have no indication of what that would look like. And I will tell you, when he first started bringing this up, it surprised some of his own senior advisors who have been working with him on policy and had never had one single conversation with him on Obamacare. He seems to be going with what he just heard the last minute before and just putting it out in a message. Something's never changed. Kristen Soltis Anderson and Kristen Holmes, thank you. And coming up right after the holidays, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash will moderate CNN's Republican presidential debate live from Des Moines just five days before the Iowa caucuses. That will be January 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Well, thousands of migrants are joining a new caravan from southern Mexico headed to an already overwhelmed U.S. border. We'll take you live to Eagle Pass, Texas, next. In our national lead, thousands of people have joined a migrant caravan from southern Mexico heading toward the U.S. border. It comes ahead of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Mexico City tomorrow to try alleviating the unprecedented migrant surge. CNN's Rosa Flores is on the ground for us in Eagle Pass, Texas. As a migrant caravan forms in southern Mexico with thousands from Central and South America, the scene on the U.S. southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas has changed. The areas where thousands of migrants were waiting outdoors to be transported for immigration processing last week were emptied out this week. The flow this morning appearing to be down to a trickle. A senior Customs and Border Protection official telling CNN that while the scene in Eagle Pass has improved, the agency is not out of the woods yet. 
CBP still grappling with elevated numbers of migrant encounters on the U.S. southern border. More than 11,000 migrants are waiting in shelters in northern Mexico, 3,800 in Tijuana, 3,200 in Reynosa, 4,000 in Matamoros. Many hoping to enter legally, but some opting to cross illegally, say community leaders. U.S. federal authorities reported a seven-day average of more than 9,600 migrant encounters in December. That number was 6,800 at the end of November. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to meet with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador Wednesday in Mexico City. The Biden administration is expected to put pressure on Mexico to do more to stem the flow of migrants. To deal with the flow, CBP has temporarily suspended operations at several ports of entry in several states to reassign personnel to process migrants. This, as CNN learns from a CBP official, that the surge is in part driven by pseudo-legitimate travel agencies abroad that promise trips to the U.S. but instead connect travelers to smugglers south of the border. That might explain this recent scene in Arizona. I work for CNN, and I'm wondering where you're from. What country you're from? Senegal. Senegal? Senegal? Senegal, everybody from Senegal. Smugglers are dropping off 500 to 1,000 migrants in remote areas of Arizona, the official said, creating a logistical nightmare for Border Patrol agents who have to find ways to transport them for immigration processing. For the volunteers who distribute water to migrants in the desert, it's the children who get them every time. It's heartbreaking when you see the, the little children. Now back to those 11,000 migrants who are in northern Mexican cities waiting to enter the United States. According to one shelter director, many of these migrants know that they don't qualify for asylum in the United States, but under U.S. law, they have the right to seek asylum, so many of them are doing it anyway, sometimes blinded by videos and voice messages that they receive from migrants just like them who have turned themselves into U.S. immigration authorities and then were released into communities across the U.S., and Biana, when you look at the backlog of, at, in U.S. immigration court, it's about three million cases deep, and the wait could be years. Biana, highlighting a system that is just overwhelmed. Rosa Flores, thank you. A jailed Russian opposition leader went missing for over 20 days. Well, now he's been located thousands of miles away. We'll tell you where and why. That's next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Returning to our world lead, a mystery now somewhat solved. After imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny went missing recent court dates and seemingly disappeared, it turns out that he is alive and has been moved to a prison in the Arctic. As CNN's Nada Bashir reports, that's raising a whole new set of concerns. One of President Putin's most famous adversaries. Relieved, exhausted, but most importantly, alive. We filed 680 requests in different Russian prisons trying to locate Alexei. For weeks, Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny's whereabouts were unknown. Now his team has located him at a remote penal colony north of the Arctic Circle, 
after a journey Navalny says took almost three weeks. They brought me here on Saturday night. Messages posted on social media by his aides say, I didn't expect anyone to find me here before mid-January. Navalny's team raised the alarm weeks ago after he failed to show for recent court hearings. At the time, the Kremlin stated it had neither the capacity nor willingness to monitor prisoners' whereabouts. According to Russian law, after the prisoner is being transferred to another colony, they have to notify his relatives. But we know very well that there is no law that applies to Alexei, and they will never notify anyone about uh, his whereabouts. In a statement on Monday, the director of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation said the colony in northwestern Siberia, known as the Polar Wolf Colony, is infamous for its remote location and harsh conditions. Navalny was sentenced to 19 years in prison in August after he was found guilty of extremism-related charges, which he and his legal representatives have consistently denied. This in addition to a previous 11-and-a-half-year sentence for fraud and other crimes. Known for organising anti-government street protests and using his blog and social media to expose alleged corruption in the Kremlin, Navalny has posed one of the most serious threats to Putin's legitimacy during his rule. His disappearance coming to light just days after Putin announced he would run for re-election in March 2024. It is no coincidence that uh, Navalny disappeared exactly at the moment when the so-called sham presidential elections were announced and Putin announced that he's going to be running again for, sorry, I lost count for which, uh, which term already. And while news of his whereabouts has brought some reassurance to supporters, there is deep-seated concern over the conditions the opposition figure now faces at Polar Wolf. Nada Bashir joins us now. And Nada, it is notable that this penal colony is much harsher than where he was previously held. How does that affect the U.S. view of this situation? Look, Bianca, the U.S. government has been vocal, consistently vocal, in calling for the immediate release of Alexei Navalny. We heard earlier this month from the U.S. State Department saying that Biden administration officials had made contact uh, with those in the Russian government, reminding them that they are responsible for the well-being of Alexei Navalny while in their detention and that Russia would be held accountable by the international community for uh, the conditions faced by Alexei Navalny. But of course, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, has also been consistently vocal in its criticism of the Russian government for the intimidation, harassment and repression of independent voices in Russia. In fact, the State Department earlier this month said it would continue to follow up cases of those wrongly detained in Russia. And of course, that is a primary point of concern and focus for the Biden administration, given the continued detention of U.S. nationals in Russia, Paul Whelan, of course, and the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich. So we can expect to see continued focus uh, on this case by the Biden administration, certainly. Yana? Important points to bring up. Evan Gershkovich and Paul Whelan there. Anara Bashir in London, thank you. Well, six months after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college applications, millions of high school students are debating whether to include race as part of their pitch. CNN spoke to some of those students, and their answers may surprise you. That's next. International lead, it's college application season, a stressful time for high school seniors and their parents. 
But now, six months since affirmative action was repealed, things are even more uncertain for many black students across the country. CNN's Gabe Cohen spoke to some of them. Hi, Brown. My name is Lenijah, and I am a black girl in STEM. That's Lenijah Russell's application video for Brown University. She's among the millions of students applying to college six months after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, navigating how and even whether to include race in their pitch for admission. What was your reaction to the decision? At first, I, I was a little scared. I thought it was a bit unfair. It made me doubt myself a little bit, like, are my numbers good enough? You actually took some schools off your list. I, th I felt like getting to those schools were almost impossible. But when she sat down to write her college essays, she decided it was more important than ever to discuss race as part of her life experience. I believe it made me emphasize that I was black a bit more than I probably would have. I started expressing myself more through my photos, my hairstyles. Her main essay is about growing up in a rough part of Baltimore. The thing that's important to me is my identity, who I am as a person, and race is a big part of that. You think schools are still looking for that diversity? Yes. Do not ignore such a crucial part of your identity. College advisors like Tracy Ramos are encouraging black students not to shy away from race in their applications, especially in their essays. It paints a holistic picture of who you are. Do you think without boxes to check, it's even more important to write about these issues? I do. A lot of the elite colleges are looking for ways to identify these students. The key piece of advice is make it easy for the colleges to know all of who you are. Many schools have added questions to their applications so students can discuss their life experience and how they'd add to campus diversity. As a student athlete, vice president of the Black Student Union and vice president of the National Society of Black Engineers, Sean Manley's essays captured his unique experience as a black student in rural Maryland. I was scared at first that they wouldn't be able to see my race and see all the challenges that come with it. I'm very proud of like who I am, and it's a very important part of why I'm here. Do you think it will put you in a better spot? I don't know if writing it in my essay is good or bad yet because we're kind of like the experiment class. The Supreme Court decision has added a new level of stress to an already stressful college application process for students like Sean and Lanija. Experts expect historically black colleges will see higher enrollment and more applications, and some students are taking a very different approach. You took race out of most of your essays. Yes. Harmony Moore rewrote her essays about being a black student at a mostly white Houston school. Why did you feel that was necessary? I didn't want to have the admissions, wrong admissions officer read it and then they all of a sudden like don't want to let me into their school because they feel like I'm trying to like push my race on them. Like, I think I stand out like on my own, like with my extracurriculars and with my honors that I've received. I don't want to just like have the exact same story as hundreds of other black students. And I spoke with another student named Sydney, who told me she is looking at each college individually and only writing about her racial identity for the schools that she believes are more progressive, which, Bianna, again, it speaks to the calculations that these students are making. But the reality is, as one of the students said in the piece, in a lot of ways, they are the experiment class. There is no a clear right answer at this point. And so we're going to see how all of this impacts acceptance rates in the next few months. Still a lot of concerns, Bianca, that the Supreme Court decision could reduce diversity on campuses. Yeah, that stood out to me, too, what Sean said, calling this the experiment class. Um, really fascinating reporting. Gabe Cohen, thank you.
Well, coming up, ugly sweater from Aunt Betty, more coffee mugs from Thank Grandma. Thank you. Well, time to make some returns. But this year, it may end up costing you. We'll tell you why. That's next. And our money lead, it's a big day for consumers. Time to return all those gifts that you don't want or are the wrong size. The British call it Boxing Day, and it's an official holiday. But as the old song goes, the times, well, they are changing. Let's bring in CNN consumer reporter Nathaniel Meyerson. Free returns are going away. Why? Yes, the era of free returns is ending. You see about 81% of retailers now charging um, for a return. And we're seeing this happen because returns are expensive for retailers. They have to pay for the shipping fees. They have to restock the items. And that all impacts their bottom line. So you look at some of the return fees for, for mail, uh, some of these major retailers, J. Crew $7.50, Macy's $9.99, and even Amazon has added a return fee, dollar fee, if you return to the UPS store instead of dropping it at a Whole Foods if it's closer to you. So this era is really ending, and we're seeing more shoppers buy online, and we're typically returning more that we buy online than if we see it in person. Maybe it looks better uh, online than in person. As I told you earlier, can't go wrong with the gift cards. That's what I do. Uh, I want to ask you about another matter today. Uh, the newest Apple watches can't be sold here in the U.S. What's going on here? Yeah, so the Apple Watch has been increasingly important to the company, but we're seeing a patent dispute over some of the newest versions of the Apple Watch. So sales have been halted um, of a couple of the most recent Apple Watch versions, the, the Series 9 and the Ultra 2. Apple is appealing this decision, um, but it's going to be really interesting to watch because Apple's trying to gather more data on customers' uh, healthcare information, um, but this patent infringement lawsuit um, could really impact the company. Yeah, and the Biden administration decided not to intervene on this as well. Uh, Nathaniel Meyerson, thank you so much. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Meantime, our coverage continues now with Pamela Brown in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.